Hello, and welcome back to the Gaining Health Podcast. I'm so excited to be back with you all after our summer hiatus. So I hope everyone had a wonderful summer, and I have been so excited to get back to you all because so much has happened in the field of obesity medicine in just the few short weeks that we're away. So before we jump into all that, let me briefly introduce myself to those of you who are new to the podcast. My name is Carly Burridge, and I'm the host of the Gaining Health podcast and the owner of Gaining Health. So Gaining Health is a company that I founded in 2020 to provide resources, tools, and support to clinicians who want to start or optimize an obesity management program. So I'm a PA specializing in obesity medicine, and I've been working in obesity care both on the surgical side as well as on the non-surgical side for over a decade. And so in the last five or six years or so, I've been doing a lot of education for clinicians through numerous organizations and educational institutions. And I've also started several obesity management programs from the ground up. And one of the big barriers that I was seeing was that clinicians were struggling taking what they had learned didactically and then knowing how to apply it into clinical practice in a comprehensive obesity program. And it also takes a lot of time to develop all the forms and the templates and the patient education materials needed for an obesity program. And so that's why I started Gaining Health, so that clinicians wouldn't have to recreate the wheel when starting an obesity management program, and so that more patients would have access to comprehensive, compassionate, and evidence-based obesity care. All right, so that's enough about me. Let's jump into today's episode. So first of all, welcome to the podcast or welcome back. And thank you so much for taking the time to learn more about this fascinating and rapidly evolving field of medicine. So the tagline for this podcast is revolutionizing healthcare with obesity medicine. And that truly is my goal. And I believe that we can make this a reality and that we're already seeing the evidence of some of these important shifts that are happening. You know, we're really seeing that more and more clinicians and the public at large are starting to understand the importance of treating obesity with evidence-based medical care. And I truly believe that if we can address the root cause of so many chronic diseases that we see today, we can really help people live healthier, happier, more fulfilling, and longer lives. So really, this podcast and our services at Gaining Health are geared mostly towards clinicians, but I think that anyone can benefit from hearing more about the science of obesity and the treatment options that are out there. And of course, I should mention that this podcast is for informational purposes only, and that of course, nothing in this podcast should be considered medical advice. So please see your healthcare provider for that. And if you are a medical provider, of course, always individualize care for your patients and use your own clinical judgment. So with all of that said, let's jump into the new and newsworthy since our last episode back in June. So we're going to start out with the American Medical Association's announcement of their position statement on BMI. So this position statement came out on June 14th, literally the last episode of our season one. So I've been dying to talk about this one. And there were definitely some mixed emotions about this clinic, about this position statement that I heard from different clinicians. So the title of the position statement was 
Use of BMI alone is an imperfect clinical measure. And I think that this by itself is not controversial. It's fairly well accepted that BMI definitely has its limitations. And we've heard a lot about this from obesity experts like Dr. Scott Kahan, Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford. And last season, we also discussed this in detail with Dr. Sylvia Gonson-Boli in episode 17 of season one of the Gaining Health podcast. So we know that BMI was never developed to assess health or to diagnose disease state. And we know that the numbers are based on middle-aged white men, right? So while there might be a correlation between body fat levels and BMI on a population level, as AMA points out, BMI is an imperfect measure to assess overweight and obesity because it does not directly assess body fat, right? And um, the AMA immediate past president, Jack Resnick Jr., said it is important for physicians, and I would add to that all clinicians, right, to understand the benefits and limitations for using BMI in clinical settings to determine the best care for their patients, right? So I totally agree with that. We need to start looking beyond BMI. And they go on to say that for adults, measuring BMI and waist circumference may be a better way to predict weight-related risk. They also go on to mention, though, that for children, there is no good reference data for waist circumference, which makes BMI for age the gold standard in the pediatric population. So the House of Delegates of AMA adopted new policy recognizing the issues with using BMI as a measurement. And of course, they also recognize that BMI cutoffs are based primarily on data collected from previous generations of non-Hispanic white populations and does not consider a person's gender or ethnicity, right? And so what they recommend is uh, because of the significant limitations associated with the widespread use of BMI in clinical settings, they suggest that BMI be used in conjunction with other valid measures of risk, such as visceral fat, body adiposity index, body composition, relative fat mass, waist circumference, and genetic or metabolic factors. So I think these are really important factors and and, and really important things that they point out that we can use in clinical practice beyond BMI. I think one of the issues is that some of these tests are not covered by insurance, are not readily available in everybody's clinical setting, right? So I think body composition analysis is incredibly important to use, not just for the diagnosis of obesity, but also um, to follow somebody's progress in their obesity treatment, right? Because it helps us define, you know, if somebody's losing weight, are they losing fat mass or, or lean mass or, you know, muscle mass? So I think it's incredibly important. But as we know, these machines can be expensive and it's not covered by insurance right now right? So I think waist circumference is something that's relatively easy to get. It is inexpensive. We could all do that in our offices. So that's certainly something we can start looking at um, in terms of genetic or metabolic factors. Yes, I think getting labs is incredibly important. Uh, We do have some new genetic tests that are available now to more rule out, you know, monogenetic forms of obesity. But I think all of these factors are important. I think the question is just, you know, insurance coverage and costs. So then they go on to say that, 
quote, BMI is significantly correlated with the amount of fat mass in the general population, but loses predictability when applied on the individual level, right? And that's why we say BMI really should be a screening tool for obesity, um, not a diagnostic tool. So then they also recognize that the relative body shape and composition heterogeneity across race and ethnic groups, sexes, genders, and age span is essential to consider when applying BMI as a measure of adiposity. And that is absolutely correct as well. Another important statement that is in here is that they state that the use of BMI should not be used as a sole criterion to deny appropriate insurance reimbursement. And I think that's really important because I don't know if you all see this in the clinic. I know I certainly do. Sometimes we have patients where maybe their BMI is not quite high enough, right, to to reach that cutoff for being able to use pharmacotherapy or even metabolic and bariatric surgery, right? But by using other measures, when we look at waist circumference and body composition analysis, we see that based on those criteria, they do qualify as having obesity and that treatment is appropriate in these patients, even if they don't reach that BMI cutoff. So I think that's really important as well in terms of insurance reimbursement for treatment options. The AMA also says that they will support further research and efforts to educate physicians on the issues with BMI and alternative measures for diagnosing obesity. So I also hope that other organizations will also support this, right, to educate other clinicians on the issues with BMI and alternative measures for diagnosing obesity. More research is definitely needed as well, right, because we need to have uh, standardized levels for, you know, adiposity and waist circumference, and especially in children, we need more data on that. So personally, I think this statement is a really important step in the right direction in terms of having a better definition and diagnostic tools for diagnosing obesity, as well as having better tools to assess the treatment process of obesity, right? But I have heard from some clinicians that they worry that this position statement will give clinicians permission to continue ignoring BMI and obesity, as is unfortunately often the case these days, right? And that it will give them an excuse to deprioritize the management of obesity. And we know that, you know, from the action studies from a few years ago that, you know, obesity is only being diagnosed in about half of the people who have obesity or who have a BMI over 30, right? So, so often the diagnosis is not being made. And even in those people who are being diagnosed with obesity, less than a quarter of them are having a follow-up visit to actually discuss treatment for obesity, right? So this is already a problem. And so some people are concerned that this might just make it more vague and will cause even less clinicians to start diagnosing obesity, right? So that's one concern. And I've also heard other concerns, and that is that BMI is is simple. It's easy. It's already in the EMR system, right? And asking clinicians to measure a waist circumference or other measures like body composition analysis is just simply too big of an ask of clinicians, and it won't happen. And so, you know, a lot of these same clinicians recognize the limitations of BMI, but worry that complicating the diagnosis will lead to even less diagnosis of obesity and less treatment of obesity. So those are some of the concerns uh, that people have with this position statement, and I'm sure there are others as well. But 
Overall, I think it's important that we place a greater emphasis on body composition rather than BMI alone. And I think it's especially important with some of these newer medications that are coming out, who are which are you know really highly effective medications that really suppress appetite to a significant amount. Uh, so much so that some of our patients uh, on these medications have very little interest in food. And uh, when they do eat, the portions are typically much smaller than what they could typically eat. And so in part, this is great, right? This is the goal of these medications that people can consume fewer calories without the side effect of being hungry all the time. But it also comes with its own issues, right? Um, So now the bigger concern is making sure that our patients are getting the right nutrients and getting sufficient nutrients, especially when it comes to things like protein, certain vitamins and minerals, and also hydration, right? So the way I'm seeing this, this is very similar to how we manage bariatric surgery patients who often face the same issues. And so I'm very fortunate that I've spent much of my career working uh, either you know directly in metabolic and bariatric surgery or within a center that offers metabolic and bariatric surgery because I have a very good understanding of what that education looks like what the nutritional education looks like, the emphasis on eating protein, um, on eating smaller protein-containing meals throughout the day, the focus in bariatric surgery is typically, especially early on, to get that minimum of 60 grams of protein. But I would say, you know, ideally, we want most of our patients to be eating closer to 80 to 120 grams of protein, right, depending on the patient, uh, to avoid muscle mass loss, especially during that weight reduction phase. And also to be getting at least two days a week of resistance training. We know that's also very important to help prevent muscle mass loss. So in surgery, we we talk to patients about focusing on eating protein first when they're eating their meals, right? And then their vegetables. And then if they have space, you know, maybe some starches, but in general to mostly avoid those starches and the sugars. And so, you know, this is the type of conversation that needs to go along with some of these medications as well. Um, to make sure that patients don't get into issues of either protein malnutrition, muscle wasting, or even, you know, vitamin and mineral um, deficiencies, which is not something that's really being studied right now with a lot of these medications, uh, to my knowledge, but something that we should be thinking about. And, you know, even with surgical procedures like the sleeve gastrectomy or laparoscopic adjustable gastric band, Those are not malabsorptive procedures, right? But we still recommend vitamin and mineral supplementations with those procedures as well. And maybe we need to be thinking about that with patients on these highly effective anti-obesity medications or patients that are, you know, really uh, potent responders to some of these medications. And hydration, that's another thing too, is really important that our patients are staying hydrated to prevent problems down the road. So I've gotten pretty far off track from the AMA position statement, but again, it's just going back to that body composition analysis and that we need to be looking beyond BMI, not just to diagnose obesity, but also to follow the management of the patient who is undergoing obesity treatment to make sure that they are losing the right kind of weight, that they are losing fat mass, and that we're preserving muscle mass and that we're not running into other nutritional deficiencies. Okay, and I know we talked more about that um, on last season on episode 12, where I discussed the Obesity Medicine Association's clinical practice statement 
on highly effective anti-obesity medications, which I was uh, one of the authors on. Uh, that that it was published in the Obesity Pillars Journal. So I can put a link to that article in the show notes. And again, that was episode 12 from last season. Um, but that's just to say, you know, I think this position statement was was a huge position statement from AMA and something that can really potentially change how we diagnose and how we manage obesity and how obesity is covered by insurance as well. Okay. So the second update from the summer that I really wanted to talk about is the reintroduction of the Treat and Reduce Obesity Act. So again, there was so much to cover this summer. Some of the other things I really can't wait to recap with you all are the SELECT trial and the SURMOUNT 3 and 4 outcomes. So we we know we had a news release from Lily about those. And then also some of the latest data about the effects of semaglutide, not just with the... um, Uh, select trial, but also on heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. So there is so much to talk about, um, but I will divide this summer recap into two sections because there's just too much good stuff to talk about in one episode. So stay tuned for that. But first, let's talk about the reintroduction of TROA or the Treat and Reduce Obesity Act in Congress. So this happened in July when Senators Tom Carpenter and Bill Cassidy and Representatives Brad Wenstrupt, Raul Ruiz, Marionette Miller-Meeks, and Gwen Moore reintroduced the Treat and Reduce Obesity Act into the 118th Congress. So TROA is a bipartisan bill that would directly provide Medicare beneficiaries with access to safe and effective obesity treatment tools, including FDA-approved anti-obesity medications, which, as we know, are currently not covered by Medicare. And it would also include expanded coverage of visits with healthcare providers who specialize in obesity care beyond those in the specialties that are currently listed, which includes primarily those primary care providers, NPs, and PAs. And so Joe Naglowski, who is the president and CEO of the Obesity Action Coalition, he said, quote, too many people are denied care for obesity because of high costs and inaccessible treatment options. We all likely know someone whose life would be greatly improved by comprehensive obesity care. The reintroduction of TROA gives hope that one day we will see a society that prioritizes the improved health of people with obesity by giving better access to obesity care. Well, amen to that, Joe. So the Obesity Action Coalition and many other organizations have been fighting to pass TROA for more than 10 years in Congress. So to learn more about advocacy efforts, you can also check out Season 1, Episode 11 of the Gaining Health Podcast, where we discussed obesity advocacy with Chris and Christy Gallagher. And I'll also put a link in the show notes so you can easily, within less than 30 seconds, urge your legislators to support the Treat and Reduce Obesity Act. And hopefully this time around, we can get it pushed through Congress. It would make a huge difference, right? Okay, so that's going to conclude our part one of our summer recap With part two, we'll dive more into the updates on the Surmount trial and the Select trial and on semaglutide and terzepatide and discussing some of the latest findings of the cardiovascular benefits that these medications are proving to have. 
which again, I cannot emphasize enough how important these cardiovascular outcome trials are. And if you need a reminder for how important these outcomes are, just listen to Harold Bays. And he said at the last conference, at the last OMA conference, remember this day. And so right now we're seeing some of these cardiovascular outcomes. So remember this day, because these outcomes will definitely change how obesity is viewed and how it's managed. And it may be a big piece in the puzzle of how we can, as we say at the Gaining Health Podcast, revolutionize healthcare with obesity medicine. All right, I will see you all back next week when we talk to the one and only Dr. Bob Kushner, who really needs no introduction, but I'm very excited to introduce him next week. And we have so many amazing guests lined up for this season. I just can't wait to talk to all of them and to share it with you all. I'm so excited. So I can't wait. And I will see you all back next week on the Gaining Health Podcast. Thank you for joining us on the Gaining Health Podcast and for your commitment to learning more about how we can care for people with obesity in a compassionate and evidence-based way. If you'd like to learn more about gaining health and how we support clinicians who want to start or optimize an obesity management program, please check us out online at gaininghealth.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to the podcast and sharing it with a friend or colleague and leave us a review. And lastly, if you'd like to support the podcast financially, even if it's just $5 a month, we would really appreciate it. And you can do so by clicking on our Patreon link in the show notes. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next time on the Gaining Health Podcast.